Hello and welcome to the Faber podcast. My name is George Miller, and my guest in this programme is Scottish novelist Ronald Frame. Ronald was born in Glasgow and educated there and at Oxford. He's the author of over a dozen published works of fiction and also an award-winning writer for radio and TV. Alexander McCall Smith has called him Scotland's finest contemporary writer, and he won the Saltire Award for the Scottish Book of the Year for The Lantern Bearers, which was also long-listed for the Booker Prize. Ronald's new novel, published this November, is Haversham, which tells the story of one of Dickens' best-known characters from her own point of view. Yes, we all know her from great expectations, as the unhappy bride jilted at the last moment, still wearing her wedding dress years later amid the ruins of her wedding breakfast. But how did she come to that state? What was she like as a young woman, when she was the daughter of a wealthy brewer with the world seemingly at her feet? Eschewing any sort of Dickensian pastiche, Ronald Frame takes us back to Catherine Havisham's childhood in Kent, her mother's death and childbirth, her father's aspirations for his daughter, which lead him to send her away to live with the aristocratic Chadwicks of Durley Chase in Surrey. We experience her falling in love with Charles Compasson through her own eyes. We see a Catherine Havisham capable of great passion. And we feel the full devastating force of the letter that arrives at 20 minutes to nine on the morning of her wedding. Later, we see the relationship in Dickens' novel between Estella, Pip, and his supposed benefactress Miss Havisham from a completely different vantage point. Miss Havisham's fate is the more poignant as she is aware she is trapped within her role. After Pip has declared his intention to write a novel about his life, she reflects, I read it wryly, self-consciously, I sometimes thought that I disappointed him. He would have liked me to be more of a Miss Havisham than I was. When we met recently in Glasgow's Merchant City, I began by asking Ronald about his first encounter with Miss Havisham and Great Expectations. My first contact, I think, must have been with the film, before I read the book. And, of course, watching the film and following Pip a few steps behind into the cavernous, candlelit drawing room of Satis House, I think I fell under the spell of Miss Havisham or Martita Hunt's playing of Miss Havisham. I think possibly she was... I think she was in her mid-forties when she played the part and I think was playing older than her age. And I think the character, in fact, is not really older than her mid-thirties when we encounter her. So it wasn't quite representative, but that didn't really matter because the essence of Miss Havisham was there and all her mystery. And I think that's probably true for most people that it's their first acquaintance with the character or watching her on television. Then I came to the book later on, of course. And it's interesting because in the course of the book, Dickens lays a track of clues about Miss Havisham. And that's why I was always so impressed. The difficulty, I think, in writing fiction is to make all the characters appear to have, or make them feel as if they have a kind of density, that there's a thought history to them backstory and it's there for Miss Havisham it's a slightly ghostly story but it's there and so few people seem to have remembered it when they've closed the book but it haunted me down the years and um, for some reason I went back to it 
I'd forgotten a sort of tiny detail until very recently that um, when I finally left university, I went to live in Sherborne in Dorset. For a couple of years, I was teaching there at um, the boys' school and also some of the girls in the girls' school. And um, every afternoon, I went for a long walk. I was on a part-time table. And um, I passed, as I began my walk, and I passed again coming back from my walk, uh, an abandoned brewery, a brew house, like some great beached ship, a ship with trees growing out of the windows. And uh, I was again very taken by this place. And I used to um, stand there in front of it, sort of trying to imagine what it had been like in its heyday. I think probably this is also at the, at the, at the back of my writing this. It's just, as I say, a detail which I'd forgotten until recently, but often these things come together. You know, you can have one idea and then another idea, and then walking down a street one day several years later, the two ideas, for some reason, as you're turning the corner, and you didn't think you were thinking about them, come together. You mentioned this desire to explore the backstory, the, the, the density within the character. What was it particularly about Miss Havisham that made you want to explore her story? Well, in that overused word, she has become um, an iconic character. I should have imagined that half the population, if you ask them, would recognize the name Miss Havisham. So she's become this um, madwoman, this um, crazy lady, this uh, bats in the belfry type. And I was simply interested in knowing how somebody who presumably had everything going for her early in her life ended up like this. When I started the novel, I did have a, a, a laptop, but it was rather complicated getting the internet and sending emails. I had to crawl under the whole table to do so every time and sort of hook up to the telephone. So my research was done in the old-fashioned way in libraries, and I started reading books about brewing and the history of it. And it became obvious reading these that, in fact, at the end of the 18th century, Brewers were becoming the aristocrats of trade. They were making an enormous amount of money, especially to um, when the Napoleonic um, Wars um, had started and um, the supply of the Navy and so on. And it occurred to me that probably um, somebody in... Well, we knew from the book that um, Mr. Havisham had a daughter. She didn't have a mother. Her mother had died. And she never knew her mother, in fact. And so it occurred to me that Probably what would happen in her mid-teens is that the father would attempt to give her some polish, to educate her, with the hope of making a judicious marriage. That wasn't being hinted at anywhere in Great Expectations, but I thought it was one way of getting into the character and then sort of, as you like, taking her out of a Dickensian world and putting her into a Jane Austen world, which was um, you know, happening in the first... Uh, years really of the of the 19th century and the rest just has to be made up which was which is the job of of fiction you imagine the character to life and you hope that you might make a compelling story out of it while all the time aware that you're dealing with such a well-known character and that what you do must somehow add to our some knowledge of that character and not be a kind of um, 
cheap attempt to um, to trade on it. What I didn't want to do was a kind of crinoline and breeches story where you're really just a modern people in um, old-fashioned modes of dress. What I was hoping to do was to sort of try to imagine what it was actually like, um, and it is just imagining, um, to be alive in, in those days. The fact that you were living by candlelight at night, um, going to bed early, up early to sort of catch the frost light, living by the seasons. But not just that sort of thing. Also, what was the equivalent of um, television images and cinema images and so on? And I um, found that, I think, in, in poetry and also in the kind of um, the legends of Greece and Rome. And how do we dramatize our feelings today? We have soap operas and film stars to help us, but how did one go about it in those days? And obviously in Dickens' novel, we have her her voice when she speaks aloud, but you had to find her internal voice. How difficult was that to to create? I didn't, um, I didn't really find that a problem. Again, it's just the business of writing fiction. I think you have to identify with your characters, and it's not onerous to me. Perhaps the problem occurred with the language, how um, cod do you make your telling of the story? And in a sense, I really wanted to come up with something which read like a kind of very loose translation of what she might have said. I changed the story a little bit towards the end because I had a little bit more in my original manuscript about her surviving into the future and being a kind of ghost inhabiting rooms and, and buildings. And then what happens to the buildings and they're raised and so on so that she's telling her story and she's trying to find kind of peace and as we say today closure so perhaps it was more it was easier for me then to not worry if i was say dealing with anachronisms but i sort of reined that in a little bit and sort of tried to bring her back to something which did sound authentic but wasn't too sort of clumsily authentic something which would read to us still naturally well, I think I think a translation is actually a very good way of putting it because it points to a to a supposed original which might be a, a, yeah. a purely nineteenth century diction, preserves its character, but in a way has rendered it in a in a slightly different language without being overtly anachronistic. The only point of writing the book is to make you feel you've actually lived with Miss Havisham. The funny thing is that I wrote this novel a long time ago, and for various reasons I left it in my laptop and at many points over the years I've sort of gone back to it because I felt I was reading something which somebody else had written because it was in the past and I felt a kind of degree of detachment from it and because I wasn't remembering the business of writing it I actually could enter into the narrative um, more easily and lose myself and I, I did feel that I had spent time with her and that I was kind of pulling myself back into the present time at the end of it which um, as I say, it's really the only point in, in writing these things at all. You can also overload such books with research, and I haven't um, really worked in historical novels before. It was one of the things that I did find a little bit off-putting, was just often the things which give you most difficulty doing, be it researching or writing, and when you're editing a book, they can be the most difficult to take out because you just remember the time that you spent doing it but often are the bits that should go first because, in fact, 
they are slightly clunky and that you should always be kind of aiming for fluidity. I think I was trying to take out again some of the kind of historical detail and just sort of getting back to the person. As I said, I didn't want to make her too modern and yet at the same time it did occur to me that probably what happened after the death of her father was that she had an interest in continuing the firm so that she develops an interest in the whole brewing business but she does feel herself coming up against the kind of um, paternalistic um, culture that um, applies within Haversham's and she's having to fight against this so there's that kind of right on element of um, you know the 21st century but I didn't want to kind of turn it into a kind of dynasty and period dress and you've got the paternalistic element not only within Havisham's brewery but indeed within early 19th century society in general haven't you which imposes yes. its own constraints on on freedom of action for a, for a heroine yes as I said um, it seemed to me that the, the world there were infinite possibilities for this brewer's daughter that she could have made a very um, successful, attractive, glittering marriage. We know that she has an element of pride, and the pride, in fact, is um, is possibly her undoing. Although I don't think it maybe occurs at the moment we. Uh, imagine it. It doesn't really come with the jilting. I think it comes later than that. I don't want to stress too much the kind of modern side of things, but because we live in an age of images and pictures and the whole idea of presentation, self-presentation is very important, um, I brought it into the book in a certain way. I think she's very conscious of how the community, Rochester, the town, how the people that she's grown up with see her. This to me seemed one aspect of Charlotte Rampling's um, playing of the character at the end of the 1990s on television. And I thought it was a very interesting um, aspect, uh, almost a certain sense of boredom with this image of herself that she has helped to create. And in a sense, she's trapped inside it. And it's quite difficult um, for her to get out of it. What happens, of course, in the book is that um, she rears Estella, her ward, to be her revenge on the male sex. And then at the very end, before disaster strikes, she repents of this. I mean, it's not up to me to criticise Dickens's decisions about anything, but I sometimes feel there's a sort of sense in which she's been conventionalised there, whereas before I, I rather liked the notion of somebody who had decided to cut herself off from the world to sort of assemble Estella in this image and then to sort of let her go and just to kind of see what happens. But she does um, realise the folly of her ways with um, the adult Pip and she realises just how much she has um, corroded Estella, which um, within the context of the book, yes, Dickens makes to work, but there's a sort of wayward aspect to Miss Havisham, which um, is also a little bit lost at that point. And of course, unlike most novels, most of your readers 
will know that she's going to be jilted and will know some of her subsequent story. So that, that presents you as a novelist with a, a different set of expectations and challenges, I guess, in order to keep the reader interested in it. And also, Miss Havisham is aware that Pip has intimated that he intends to write a novel at some stage. She, she's aware that she may be passing into fiction herself and someone else's fiction. Yes, I think one has to resist being too sort of tricksy and clever about it. But I mean, I, I did, yes, this notion of, of fiction, as I say, having an image and Rochester has decided to sort of make her this tragic figure who was jilted at the altar. But perhaps she originally didn't want this image. And that's why I sort of slightly play about with the, the time sequence that I don't think she immediately necessarily retires into Satter's house. I think perhaps there's an, there's, a, there's an interim period when other things are going on. And then there's a further rejection by the Thailand she at that point, especially with the, the, the sort of commercial problems that she's um, encountering with the, with the brewery. Um, there comes a point when she decides that um, she will become this image rather than having it foisted upon her. It's funny because you then go back to the beginning of the book and you look through it and you, you weren't deliberately doing it, but I mean, I can see there's a lot of reflections in the book. There's images, there's mirrors, there's light, there's um, people's shadows. Um, the, the idea that a physical person and the internal person, you know, they're causing eff effects on others, how people see themselves. It's, it's often, if you're giving a physical description rather than just giving a kind of third person description of something, if, if the person themselves can, let's say, see their image and judge themselves and what other they think other people are seeing, it becomes um, more interesting. We also have this um, the classical world as well. We have statues, we have paintings, we have drama. You know, this old idea that we can, there are certain archetypes, there are ways of behaving, that the legends tell a certain essential number of human stories and that we just spend our lives kind of playing these out. And you're writing a book about a girl who's, who is intelligent, she's quite clever, but she hasn't really had a great many um, opportunities until she goes to join the Chadwicks at Durley Chase and um, then she does pick up some more kind of intellectual book knowledge and she kind of works her way through this seeing if this can have kind of helped to define her life as well. There's the lack of a mother of course she hasn't um, she hasn't had this she's had a very close friend Sally um, the daughter of um, a worker who was injured very badly and partly from guilt um, her father has um, allowed Sally to become quite close to, to Catherine although he also senses that there are certain dangers there and in that sense Catherine doesn't really have a kind of um, strong kind of um, as we would say female role model and has kind of grown up in this um, world of her father's um, the um, the male hierarchy within Havisham, also the rather sexist society of the town and so on, and very much her father's daughter carrying the name Havisham. Because he doesn't um, have a son that he feels that he can give the business to, 
It's slightly more complicated than that. It's not to say she doesn't have a son, but uh, I think she feels a certain equivocalness about even her 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 gender. She's kind of between at that point female and male. She knows there are certain kind of expectations that she has of herself. She doesn't really want to disappoint her father, and she wants to live up to the name, and so that means taking over a a male role. Which is making it sound all rather heavy because I didn't really think that way about it, you know, but these things. What you don't want to do when you're writing a book is just to sort of come to the end of it and the book gets closed and that's that and you don't think about it again. It's nice if you wake up the next day and there are things in your head or the images in the book live with you or there are certain questions, certain moral questions, uh, to to do with the depiction of character, um, that resonate in the mind. Tell me about portraying her fiancé, who does exist in Dickens' novel, Charles Compasson. Compasson, I think, is rather shadowy by design. I preface the book with a quotation from Plato. Love is in the one who loves, not in the one who is loved. So what I was saying there was that the idea of being in love is probably what appeals um, rather more to Catherine than even the reciprocation of that love. I think as we're reading the book we see that perhaps she's investing too much in the relationship. Composite is sort of composite as a character. I mean, he's sort of, um, he is different things for different people. And Uh, we see reflections of him through other people's eyes, don't we? Yes. Most of which Catherine rejects. Yes, and the Chadwicks are issuing warnings all the time, but she doesn't, um, she doesn't heed them. As I say, it's part of this element of pride and not being told what to do and what to think, because she's always been known as um, a rather stubborn child, girl, young woman. The danger of Composant is, is the fact that he's not quite as defined as... I don't mean from my point of view, I just mean as a person who seems to be sort of going through life and as I say, he's kind of changing from venue to venue. He has hit on the things that Catherine needs from him. He's romantic. He doesn't fit into the system. He's a bit sort of disrespectful and she enjoys all these things. But he doesn't sort of do anything for the Chadwicks and they are aware to the, aware of the dangers. But she feels, of course, that coming from them, it's... Um, it's, it's somehow criticism, criticism that's meant to constrict her and she, and she doesn't want that. And in many ways, Compton becomes the point at which she has to break with the, the Chadwicks. On the other hand, he mustn't be unsympathetic, so we have to see the, the, the very positive side of things, of the effects that he has on Catherine, that he, he brings her out and he gives her genuine happiness. And I think he has a crisis, a genuine kind of crisis of... Um, conscience as well. I think at the last minute he probably does realise that um, this really isn't going to do much for either of them and um, writes the letter. So the letter arrives uh, at 20 to 9 and that is the point at which subsequently the, all the clocks in Satis house are stopped and life is seemingly frozen. I find it always fascinating to see how money circulates in novels, and this is a novel in which money indeed does circulate, often in in hidden and surprising ways. And Catherine indeed reflects on money's power to do both good and harm. So was that something that you were 
you were working away at as you were developing the novel. Yes, I, I, I wasn't meaning to write a kind of brief. You see, the thing about fiction is I think a lot of fiction I find very programmed and um, I think fiction should be a bit like a dream. It's certainly written as a dream and often authors have favourite times of the day either very early on when they're not quite awake or at the end of the day when they're kind of it's dark and you're writing in a pool of light surrounded by darkness and you seem to be making contact again with um, the essence of this fiction which you've started. So I don't um, normally chase issues. The narrative to me is the important thing. It's the, um, the casting of a, of a spell. But you point this out and again just picking up the business of, of research and realising the vast amounts of money that were being made in brewing. Of course this does have a bearing and yet um, to resort to a cliche money does not turn by Catherine happiness and she realises that Compasson in fact has been much more kind of um, corrupted and soured by money and the getting of money than, than she understood. There's also a financial arrangement that she hasn't really been aware of with the Chadwicks, which I think she finds quite disturbing. The idea of buying people's affection, which I think is what it amounts to really. Of course it's easy to become a recluse and it's easy to become eccentric when you are moneyed. People don't question it in quite the same way. It becomes more colourful and characterful and all the rest of it. It's more difficult to do these things when you don't have much money. So she's slightly kind of protected from this. Even though the house is falling down, you know, it's still a significant property and there is still presumably wealth in the Havisham name. And she's able to do things with Estella to precipitate this launch into society or to buy all the things that she needs for her and to send her off to be finished on the continent and so on. So yes, money is um, is a significant element in the story, but um, I just don't want to make too much of it just because I think it then makes the fiction sound a little bit too programmed and even political, which it's not meant to be. When you get to the parts of the story with Estella, which, which Dickens also narrated, how did, you, how did you approach writing those where you have pre-existing scenes or dialogues where your narrative may intersect um, or be, be told from a different vantage point? Yes, the different vantage point is the point, um, you know, of the whole book. You're telling the, the story from Miss Havisham's point of view. So the thing is to, you know, maybe take dialogue and to find ironies which uh, clearly aren't there in the original text. But because we have lived with Catherine Havisham up until this point, that there are reasons why the, she says the cryptic things that she does say. and. We're taking some of these original phrases and kind of turning them inside out. Yes, I, I mean, I had to edit them. I didn't, I wasn't taking them all, of course, and I was um, putting them into... Well, while the situation might seem the same as in Great Expectations, because we're coming at it from the opposite side, it just has a, has a different meaning. Pip, I think, is... Pip Pirip, I think, the adult is there more as a kind of witness, and she kind of uses him as it suits her and yet at the same time I think he's one of the few characters that she trusts and she kind of realises that he recognises her intelligence as well. I'm not quite sure that's there in the 
book, I think it's more the kind of, he, he sees her in relation to his past as, and how it's kind of, because he thought that she was his benefactress for so long, is reading the past through her, his own past, while from her point of view that doesn't signify in quite the same way. She's more interested in finding out, I think, about Estella through Pip. And so she's using that relationship, I think, for a slightly different purpose from what, what we get in the book. So this is the obverse. I think this is the other side of the, the tapestry, as it were. You talked about images which remain in the reader's mind. And the one I'm going to ask you about is one which also remains in Catherine Havisham's mind. She's walking by the cam in Cambridge with, I think, the Chadwicks. Mm. And she sees a woman walk into the river and quietly, slowly commit suicide. And that stays with that stays with her. That's something which, which recurs through the book. And I guess that, that made me think about an alternative. If Miss Havisham's character were, were slightly different, then perhaps she would have done something similar. But it, 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 it pointed to a sort of yes, sig- a, a, mo- a moment that seemed to have marked her. Yes. I can't remember where that moment came from. It's funny, you sit down. I mean, you, you kind of are a vague notion of where the, the book is going and but I, I, I kind of like this organic approach to fiction not even necessarily writing it in sequence but writing the bits that you feel like and for some reason that image came from nowhere and rather than feeling well it comes from nowhere perhaps it doesn't fit the thing is to see well it's come for a reason that's going to fit it in somewhere and it's one of these, you know, we, we go through our own lives and these strange things happen on the kind of periphery of life. It's slightly more than peripheral because I think she realises that this girl has taken one particular way out. She has succumbed to despair. And I think when we get to her, her own um, brush with um, brute reality, this is at the back of her mind, you know, the idea that she could surrender. Um, she could give in to cause, because she is... She is very affected by it, and she's fevered and all the rest of it. She could just go under. But the image has stayed with her, and combined with this notion of Havisham pride and so on, she pulls through this. This was something, even the very image that she was seeing in Cambridge was something which others were trying to protect her from, but um, you know they haven't been able to wipe it from her memory. And as I was reading the book, I, in my mind, juxtaposed her memory of this girl dying by, by drowning in the cam with another flashbulb memory moment, which remains with Catherine, and that is of coming unexpectedly upon William Chadwick having sex with another man's wife on the floor of, of the hermitage. And that also is clearly deeply imprinted on her, her mind thereafter. Yes. Um, the idea of passion, I think, works its way through the book. I mean, it works its way from the very beginning and, and also the business with the, the father and what he becomes involved with after the death of, of the mother. Also, because we've had all the classical images, the statues, the paintings, the dramas and so on, which are really just kind of tidied up versions, if you like, of these um, basic um, life experiences, death, birth, sex. Her response to that, I think, is both to kind of, well, there's the betrayal by Wim as well, of course, but I think it does unleash um, certain feelings in herself. She does, I mean, she's a passionate 
woman and I wanted her to be this way. I think if she weren't, then it would matter so much less, wouldn't she? What Becoming a sort of mummified creature, I think that was, that was something very important that I took from the book, the importance that she was a, a deeply passionate woman. But there's also this um, element of restraint, the fact that she's always been at Habersham, she's always been under kind of constant um, observation by people, that there's also a sense of guardianness about her, I think, which she, she, she imposes upon herself, and she realises that there are some... You know, she could go all the way with Compasson, but I think it's as much her decision as his to kind of watch it beyond a certain point that um, I think she allows the romance to come back into play again, perhaps because she's rather frightened by what she has seen. I mean, there are many feelings, you know, there's a kind of envy of whim and this particular woman. And as I say, it all kind of ties in with betrayal as well. It's a kind of complicated picture, I think, that she's seeing. And also, I suppose, she feels it's kind of unfair, you know, that um, women's allowed to do this, whereas she's kind of... It's, it's different for women. The woman he's with, of course, is a kind of social adventuress, and um, this is something, I think, which Catherine would actually look down upon. There are certain ways of behaving, I think, which do alarm her. As I say, behind it all is this notion that um, she was brought up in a certain way. It's not snobbishness, um, but it's a sort of sense of um, expectation for herself, by herself. She's quite hard on herself, I think, and it would be easier for her to give way to these emotions, be it to have a sexual relationship or, as I say, to give in to feelings of despair. Let me ask you in, in conclusion, Ronald, there are a number of novels which are prequels or sequels or imagined continuations uh, of, of, of classic fiction. Did, having had this experience, is it, is it one that you would ever think about repeating? There presumably are pros and cons about, about this kind of dialogue with a, a great literary antecedent. As a writer, how did you feel about that experience as opposed to writing a, a fiction entirely from the imagination? If I could even remember the reason why I wrote the book, it would probably be easier to answer the question, but I don't. It just sort of came to me as probably quite a good idea. And I kind of went from that, and I wrote the novel, and I also wrote a radio play. There is a bit of um, cheek and bravado about it as well, of course. I I realise that, and you're taking a character who um, is uh, so well-known. It's rather presumptuous of you to do anything with her at all. The difficulty actually is in finding characters that you can work with. I did uh, have a stab at another Dickens character, Steerforth, but it's not quite the same kind of thing. It interested me, but it doesn't have quite the same reach as um, as Catherine um, Habersham. I would have to say probably, well, it's curious actually because I've been kind of working on a an Edwardian romp which does take real-life characters and brings them into fiction, but it's 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 a slightly more um, ironic, do I say? Um, it's kind of tongue-in-cheek treatment of public figures. Well, one doesn't want to rule it out, but I, I, I think probably not. There's a certain degree of confinement with the character because I think you have to be 
true to this um, character. I mean, the, the point of writing Havisham was just, and again, it sounds a bit kind of presumptuous, it was just to kind of inhabit her for a while to let us see what possibly made her tick. For myself, I think it was probably a, a trick I would do once, but I, I feel probably happier just when I have a completely kind of clean page and um, bringing my own characters to life and not having the responsibility to Dickens as well as to the character. So I think possibly an experiment that, not because I didn't enjoy it, but um, just because it was difficult in certain ways to repeat soon. Ronald Frame. Havisham is out now in hardback. For more information about it, go to faber.co.uk. That's all for this edition of the Faber podcast, but I'll be back again soon with another programme. You can make sure you never miss the programme by subscribing to it on iTunes. It's free, quick and easy. Go to iTunes and type Faber in the search box on the podcast page, and a subscription is just a couple of clicks away. Until next time, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.